When addiction is talked about in the church, it is so easy to default to the plague of pornography. However, so many are struggling with substance abuse such as alcohol, narcotics, methamphetamines, fentanyl, and more intense substances. And these aren't issues for only those we might label as druggies who are in and out of jail. These issues impact those who appear most normal at church. Not to mention the domino effect that a substance abuse addiction can have on a marriage, family, and even a ward. That's why we've put together the Recovering Saints Virtual Conference, where we have 20-plus authors, medical doctors, addiction specialists, and even those in recovery sharing their perspectives in order to help us as Latter-day Saint leaders be better prepared to minister to those suffering through and overcoming addiction. Recovery is real, even for those considered too far gone. Help is available and we can assist those struggling to find it. To see all the details of the Recovering Saints virtual conference and to register to attend virtually for free, find the link in the show notes or visit leadingsaints.org recovering. Now, in this episode, I'm actually going to share with you a presentation from the upcoming Recovery Saints virtual conference. In this episode, I talk with Evan Hathaway. I first met Evan at one of our Warrior Heart men's retreats, and we became quick friends. During one of the meal times at the men's retreat, Evan told me a little bit about his story, and again, it made me realize that addiction also impacts the lives of those we think have it most put together. Evan is an accomplished dentist, family man, and former bishop, but he was not free from the threat of addiction, and his story of recovery is inspiring. Here's my interview with Evan Hathaway. Today, I get to welcome in a good friend of mine, Evan Hathaway. How are you, Evan? Great. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is cool. We've known each other now, I think, a couple of years. Yep. And yep. the first time I met you, I mean, and this may be just the podcast guy. I'm like, everybody's got a story and I want to sit him down and record it. Mm-hmm. But your story definitely was one I wanted to capture. And as we were putting together this virtual conference, I thought, I've got to get Evan's story on this. And so maybe let's just start the basics. Put yourself in the context where you're from, what you do, anything like that. I'm from Eagle, Idaho, just outside of Boise, and I'm an addict to recovery, and I have no shame in saying that. To me, it's like saying, that's the divinity, that's the place where I found Christ, so no shame in me saying that. I am a dentist, working part-time, you know, getting close to retirement. Any specific Uh, specialty or? Yeah, I do. I actually specialize in, I mean, we do general dentistry, but I do a lot of sedation dentistry where people that have high fear will show up and they got to catch up and do a little bit of everything. So I've done a general practice residency after dental school. So I'm kind of trained to do some pretty broad reaching things. So if somebody's really got a lot of fear, then I'm able to take them through, you know, pretty big reconstruction, implants, oral surgery, you know, periodontal work, blah, blah, blah. Nice. It's a passion for me to, you know, recreate, help people, you know. That's awesome. And did you always want to be a dentist or? You know, I, I didn't know that I wanted to be a dentist back in the day because I really didn't know what all they did. I was, went to school as a, to be an engineer like my dad. And when I was in school, one of the instructors goes, you know, you guys, I was at Rick's College. You guys don't know if you're going to be an engineer. So let me give you this interest test. And it's really, you know, quite a big test. And when I took the test, it said, dentist is who you should be. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's too much stuff. I don't want to do that. So I uh, went on a mission after that and thought, you know, you grow up on your mission. And, and I realized you know what, maybe I could put in eight years. Yeah. Um, so I went back, took the test again. It said, dentist. 
but the caveats are you're you're a little more religious minded and less of a risk taker. And I'm like, oh man, that validates. Wow. So I jumped. Sense, huh? yeah, yeah, I jumped, and it's been good. It kind of fits yeah. my artistic side and my you know caregiver side, and so it's been a really good fit good. for me. So tell me about your just your upbringing. Pretty traditional Latter Day Saint family, or very traditional, loving, kind parents tried the best that they could. Was um, this in Idaho, or where did it was in Idaho? Okay, yeah. Well, I'm a fifth generation Idahoan, but my parents moved to Las Vegas when I was just a little kid. My dad worked for the test site where they tested nuclear weapons out in the desert of outside of Las Vegas. So we lived in Las Vegas and he'd ride a bus out area 50, one of those areas. <laughs> That's where he worked. So, but traditional LDS family, the upbringing that I had, I couldn't ask for any better, but like every family, you have a little sneaky dysfunction that happens because of the fact that your parents did the best they could by how they were raised. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's been my addiction recovery that helped me kind of dig into some of those early wounds that I took on from my early upbringing. But I, uh, at church service have worked in a lot of capacities and callings. I spent a lot of time working in young men's, young men presence, advisors, worked, uh, was in an elders quorum presidency, was um, a counselor in a bishopric, a high counselor, served as a bishop of young single adult ward, high counselor again, high priest group leader, blah, mm -hmm. blah. Yeah. Right now I'm currently the elders quorum instructor. And then I have a calling, I'm a, a missionary. Uh, miss, my wife and I are senior service missionaries in the addiction recovery awesome. um, program. So awesome. we lead meetings and that's kind of our, our passion. Yeah. So, I mean, growing up, you're, you know, jumped through all the hoops, right? You did the mission thing and then you checked all the boxes school. I mean, you became a dentist mm -hmm. and got married and mm -hmm. all those things. Anything like leading up to sort of where things became real in your mm -hmm. life, like mm -hmm. that sort of the, the disruptive moments and whatnot, anything else to put in the context? Well, yeah. Interestingly is you know, I say this in humility, God, he blessed me with a lot of gifts. And my challenge was that with these gifts and the ability to work hard that my parents instilled in me, I took too much ownership in what I did. Hmm. And then I accomplished a lot, checked a lot of boxes, and it looked really good from the outside where I was, things I had, what I'd accomplished. And it kind of reinforced in me over my lifetime of you can do this. You know, I always called out God and spoke to God and had a testimony and had spiritual and religious experiences, but it kind of reinforced in me a, of, you know, if, you know, if it is to be, it's up to me or up mm -hmm. to you or, and that actually had to be something that needed to be broken in me for me to continue to progress. Yeah. So I think that's really crucial to mention because mm -hmm. especially from the leadership perspective, we see individuals struggle with addiction and whatnot. And we think from our own experience, you know, I just worked really hard and I, you know, I got through these things. I went to college. I, you know, I, I, I'm hitting the spiritual points here that why don't you do that? Right. And so we can get in that trap of, I'm going to just do this myself and overcome all this myself. And we lose that surrender component. That's so crucial. Oh, no question about it. For me, I like, I'm going to flesh out my story a little yeah, bit. That's okay. Yeah. So in my life, there was a nuclear bomb that went off in addiction. And I'll kind of tell you when it happened. And it was kind of an awakening time for me to actually look back in my life and see and understand. The Holy Ghost taught me a lot when I humbled myself enough. But about 11 years ago, I had become addicted to painkillers after a shoulder surgery. And no, so that was about 14 years ago. That lasted for about three years in my life before the nuclear bomb went off. So maybe really unpack that. 
So you, you needed shoulder surgery for, did you get an injury or? I had an injury. Okay. Yeah. Very active sports. Love to, you know, we'll get into it, but sports okay. was kind of one of my addictions okay. that I didn't realize, but one of my ways to run and hide from problems that would come up or bubble up in your life, okay. which is what addiction is, is a, is a faulty coping mechanism. So in context to when that happened in my life, I had served in, well, let me do it a little bit differently. Let okay. me, let me say it this way. There were other addictions in my life, which I just didn't even understand what addiction was. And I didn't really extrapolate the data. I didn't have the eyes to see until after the big bang in my life. And God has taught me a lot since then. But I realized in recovery that, you know, I fell into my addiction because I had had a lot of other early addictions going on that I had modulated. I'd use them to cope with pain and and uncomfortable and wounds in my life. I'm mean, this incredible perfectionist and that's a painful, ugly way to live. And when that anxiety would come up that, you know, you wouldn't let people get so close to you because if they saw the real you inside that was so imperfect, you know, you had this mindset that if, if they knew who I really was, they wouldn't love me. Yeah. Um, so you keep people at bay. So it brings up a lot of pain in, in living, which you need coping mechanisms to deal with. Healthy yeah. coping mechanism is I talk to people, I interact, I connect, I talk with God about these things, get real. And I didn't do that. Yeah. You know, I didn't do that. So the, the coping mechanisms that I used were early on, I discovered pornography and had used that on and off throughout my life. You know, suppressed it, went on a mission, didn't have a problem, came home, you know, fall into it. Uh, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to get married. I don't need this anymore. This is everybody's story that battles yeah. with, with porn. And, and so on again, off again through my life fighting it. Well, talked to a stake president. I'm serving as a high counselor and he really, you know, quizzed me hard. And I said, yeah, it's been something that I've battled on and off with my life. And, and he says, you know, let's really get after that, solve it, work with it, repent. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm done. So at that point, and I'm using my today eyes, I went into white knuckle abstinence. I repented. I figure I'm done and I'm serving in this capacity. So I didn't for literally 10 years have anything to do with pornography. And during that 10 years, I was then called to serve as bishop of a young single adult ward. So back to your point, mm -hmm. I then go, okay, this is how we roll. We're always invoking God's power in this and asking for his help. But really, I'm gonna give you techniques and things that you need to do to white knuckle it. Yeah. I didn't use that term, but it's really your will. You needed yeah. more willpower. Yeah. And when you say white knuckle, I think a lot of leaders would hear that and be like, well, yeah, that's great. It was working 10 years. You know, that's pretty good, Evan, you know, but I think the point is that you weren't addressing deep down exactly. the, the void that was there. You were simply yep. saying, oh, I've, I won't go to pornography, but maybe I'll use, I'll be a super dentist or I'll right. involve myself really much in sports. So it was these, these coping mechanisms that maybe didn't have that stigma, but it was still a problem that you were going to those Exactly. to address the void in your heart, right? Absolutely. So I'd never really dug in deep, mm -hmm. deep healing and address the, the wounds or the hurt or the stuff that was bubbling up. So then I would go to a um, crazy sports guy, work out in the gym crazy, mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't realize those were addictions. So really what had happened is I started modulating my pain, yeah. not with the porn addiction. I modulated it with working out crazy, perfectionism, sports, um, golf, and yeah. these passions. And I want to just insert here, just this experience of you serving as a bishop during this time, like this may be hard for a lot of leaders to hear is that even like a mission, right? You, we heard so many stories of individuals who struggle with some type of addic addiction before a mission, they go on a mission, they're sort of good because it's 
highly structured. You're, you know, right. you're with somebody every, every day. You don't have access to maybe the coping mechanisms. And like I was before, a great right? checkbox guy. Yeah. And you're great. checking the box and then you come home and then there's sort of this, there's not that structure anymore. Now church leadership can provide that as well, where Absolutely. you're like, man, I'm at the church three times a week. I'm like involved in people's lives. I'm going to overdo the bishop thing. And then I never have to look at that, that void inside of me and I'm good. But then what happens is you get released, right? Yeah. So perfect. Exactly. So my validation that I would get from these other things that would cover my pain, you got it as a church leader, certainly. Yeah. So, and I, and I led with, you know, it was a spiritual, wonderful experience. I know I always buoyed up the spirit. Yeah. I mean, just tremendous. Everybody that's done that knows that. But at the end of my calling, I got this shoulder surgery and then I'm taking these painkillers. And so let me like, so you get this prescription after your surgery, here's your prescription. And you're like, okay, I'll just, you know, just like we all do, I'll, I'll take the pills and, mm-hmm. and we're good. Like, so maybe they really take us in that moment. And then what time did, at what point did you just cross the line? Maybe you didn't realize it. So I, I didn't realize it because what happened is I'd taken, it would take the pain away of my shoulder and I'm this active guy that's doing all these things. So then your level of denial, justification, minimization is just amazing. And I didn't see it as that, but gosh, my, I'd hurt my wrist. My knee would hurt. I have a back problem with a like bulging disc. So it would take all that pain away and I would manage them. And, and my issue being a professional, I had that painkiller in my office in the drawer that you could give out to patients as samples mm. and reorder more. So I didn't have to have a prescription again. I was, I was easy. I just reordered them. So what happened for me is at that point in my recovery, I, and this all subconscious, but the anxiety that I lived with of trying to be this perfectionist and do these things that went away. And so I was like a pump primed and ready for the next thing to fall into. Addiction's like a bump in a rug. You step on it and flatten it. And if you haven't resolved the problem, the bubble pops up somewhere else Mm. as a different addiction. So I didn't know that, but if essentially then I go into this full-blown addiction and that goes on for about three years and, and I'm going, oh, I could quit if I could resolve this. And so I'm praying to God for more willpower. God, mm-hmm. please bless me with more willpower so that I can overcome this. And I'm praying just fiercely for more willpower. And I know now that he's smiling at me in heaven and looking down and saying, my son, you've got all kinds of willpower and that's not what you need. You need humility. You're trying to handle it yourself. You need mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And you're asking me to bless with willpower. Because I wanted to resolve this, sweep it under the rug, set the rug down. Nobody needs to really know about this issue. I'm healed. And then move on with life and be the same old guy. Yeah. And he had bigger plans that I wasn't going to be the same old guy. Yeah. He wanted more than justification. He wants you know you to move to that exaltation where you're actually being sanctified, growing. Yeah. And he knew that I was stuck. And so he gave me a prescription I needed to fill, which was this problem. Yeah. So- Like when you're in it, you go through the prescription that the shoulder surgery doctor gave you. Mm -hmm. And then was it like, oh, you know, my wrist is hurting. So did you go back for more prescription? Like saying- I just went to my own supply. Oh, okay. And interestingly, part of that story is I would just, I'd I'd think, okay, I'm going to not do this. This is, I think I got a problem and I got to quit. And I would quit and try and use my will and my my willpower. Anybody that understands addiction, that lasts for a little while. And then you go back. Uh So I'd order more, more pills and I'd have them. And there'd be Sundays that I'd, you know, really feel the spirit and prompting and feel great guilt about where I was and what I was doing and probably bordered on shame. Mm-hmm. It was more shame than guilt. But honestly, what happened is I would go to my office, take that bottle of pills and throw in the dumpster mm-hmm. and go, no, never again. Yeah. You and quit then, every day. for. Yeah. And then, then a yeah. couple of weeks later, I'd order more and off I went. So D-Day for me 
was I'm working in my office and a board of pharmacy DEA agent show up and they're like, we need to talk to you unscheduled. I'm working on patients, staff, everything going. And um, I'm like, oh no, this is bad. And essentially it moving quickly, they said, you got a problem. You're going to need to go to rehab. And within a two day period of time, it was literally like I had handcuffs on, but it was more figuratively. And they put me in the paddy wagon and said, you're going to a 90 day rehab place because your license we have, and we're holding on to that, but you can't practice tomorrow. So, and they also said to me, we show a lot of narcotic drugs going through your office, more than one person could take. And so we're actually going to investigate with the attorney general's office about you and, and we'll let you know in three to four months, but he might be going to jail because we like to make examples of guys like you. So, so I, and at this point, I mean, technically you hadn't broken a law. You've been abusing your, your license by getting more meds, but, but then they, they're saying you, you may be You a have probably sold these, or mm-hmm. if you've ever falsified any records on a patient, you're going to jail. And had you done any of that? I hadn't done any of that, but it was my word, my story about I'm throwing yeah. him in the dumpster because I'm so, oh, yeah, feel so yeah. horrible. So the so numbers are elevated. Yeah. But it was just my word against theirs. So I had to sit, Missy and I both, in this place of, oh my gosh, here I am you know, living this life that looks perfect and going well. And I could potentially be in prison. And that, I mean, I was in such shame and fear and anxiety. And it's like, okay, you had a couple of days to get your things in order. That night, I call my staff for a meeting to come at like 10 p.m. and say, here's what's going on. We had patients the next day that I was going to sedate and do this surgery. on. We had to call them and say, don't take your pills. Mm. You know, and we had to resolve all these things. And my sweet wife, I'm just sharing this with her and she's like her world is imploding yeah. and she had no no idea she had a sense and a feeling spirit told her something's wrong with him and she could but i don't know what it is and so she'd been reaching and trying and i'm doing the, all the denial of what's going on and functioning in my life so she had a sense so when this imploded and blew up she was feeling like she was numbed and, and shocked but she was also going oh that's what it is yeah so i kind of Went to a rehab facility for 90 days. And that was like the next day you went or? It was literally, I think we had like two days. We wrapped all our stuff, got flights. We picked, we had a list. It had to be a 90 day facility. And what happens in, in a professional setting like mine, the boards that hold your license that the state uses, you have to sign up and join a program that, that says you have to do what we say for five years, which means you go to this, this 90 day rehab, three months. And then there's some rules. You've got to go really to a meeting, an AA meeting, 12-step meeting, once a day for six months. You will call in and check in, and we will do a drug test on you for every day. Every day, you have to see whether you have to do a drug test. You need to go to a marriage counselor weekly and then monthly. You need to go every week to a two-hour group setting with other professionals that are battling addiction. All these things that you had to do for five years. and I guess I want to make a point regarding that. So I'm held still. My personality is perfectionist guy. Okay, I'm going to check all the boxes, yeah. do the thing. And they just gave you a list of boxes. I am going You're to gonna... <laughs> wear the merit badge theology bandolo with all the things proudly and stick the landing and go, I did it. I nailed it. I'm healed. And Good. get back to your life. And right? get back to my life. Uh-huh. And so it was beautiful for me because it held me in this place of these things that I had to do, these check boxes of things for five years. And during that five years can't tell you what happened. My heart was changed. And at the end of those five years, I mean, then I understood, oh my gosh, 
the Holy Ghost. I'm doing these daily rituals with my wife of studying, engaging, checking in. The 12 steps are the tactical application of the atonement. But in this place of this divinity, I'm growing and learning and my heart's changing and I'm becoming a different guy. So I look back and go, oh man, that was this addiction. I fell into that and did the other. And then at the five years, it's like, okay, I can stop. I'm done. Do I need to do these things anymore? The Spirit's like, no. Mm. Now you're not checking the boxes anymore. Your heart's changed. You love the way that you live. You love the connection and you want to preach this message. So then I'm like, I got to take what I've learned here. I got to move it into a church setting and I've got to start engaging people because this beautiful work of, of connecting with him that came from this pain can be for everybody else. And it's this, you know, the porn addiction is vast. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of addiction, but in the church, that's the elephant that's standing on the heads of the husband and the wife in the sacrament meeting secretly crushing those two and then ultimately crush those kids. Yeah. And it has to be addressed. Yeah. So take me back to the D-Day moment and mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're off to this 90 day rehab and whatnot because you were caught. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I often see this, or as I've learned from other stories of like, you're caught and you suddenly become Mr. Humble. Like, yes, I admit everything. I'm so sorry. We'll get this worked out. Like, what would you say to yourself in, now with that hindsight? But also like, what do church leaders need to understand about who you were in that moment? Because from a church leader, he's like, oh, finally, Evan's got it. You know, like he's humble now. Like this would go smoothly. Everything's going to be okay. But was there maybe more layers to all that? Yeah, there were. My... And my wife's situation was so traumatic and so devastating. There's a, I mean, I didn't know what my life was going to look like. I didn't know if I'd have a wife. My kids would own me, excommunicated from the church. If you'd be a dentist my again, license. right? Yeah, I might be working at, you know, at McDonald's as a, a fellow. I don't know what it was going to look like, but I was so scared and so fearful and such incredible shame that when I got to the rehab facility, I couldn't sleep and I was so shook up. Fear kills the spirit. Mm. Fear kills the spirit. That's why every angel or heavenly being that shows up goes, fear not first, because mm. it kills this, the ability to connection. I was in such great fear and anxiety and shame is also a spirit killer. I was in such bad place in those that I couldn't feel anything, couldn't sleep. And I was at the rehab facility, just swimming, numb a little bit, just in a bad place. And I'm walking on this nature walk. I mean, this place had dogs that would sniff for drugs and a fence. And it was a pretty oh, wow. big deal. It was, mm -hmm. it was not like a, you know, party central. It was heavy. Mm -hmm. and it was a 12 step, good spiritual, religious background, but I'm on this nature walk by myself because I couldn't sleep. And I'm walking in the dark early in the morning praying. And I'd learned at one of the classes, you know what, if you're really struggling, just go through a gratitude list. Mm. And so I start to do this thing where I was like, and I thought, man, I'm losing everything, but I can see with my eyes and, and I can walk and, I, and I'm breathing. And um, so I get a little emotional because this was a big deal. And in that place of just opening my heart and being a little bit grateful, and I'm praying, I've taught all these things about the atonement and love. And here I am, you know, are all these things that I've taught, are they true? Are you there? And of course, I've been in the dark because of my fear and anxiety and shame. And then, you know, the sun rose over the mountains and I stopped and I looked at it and the silhouette of those trees. And I'll never forget that moment is it. The light came over the mountain. I felt it hit me. I just felt God's love for me and Christ's love for me. And just, I remember the tears streaming down my face just as I felt this, like, I do love you. I thought because of my, my imprints, I thought that I had to earn. I thought I had to get cleaned up before I presented myself before him, before I could really even receive his love. I still had this deep imprint about, you know, 
this economy of God was like the economy on earth that you needed to do things to earn it. And when I felt his love in this place and I really felt him say to me, I love you, Evan, and I got you and it's going to be okay. And then from that moment, you know, I was able to get out of that fear and then comprehend him and his love. And then I was like, I'm in, let's go. Mm -hmm. I want to connect. I want to find the things. And then I really jumped into the 12 steps, which are, it's divine. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So you go through the 90 day Mm -hmm. rehab and you come home and then you have this, like for the next five years, you've got these different focuses and meetings and therapy mm-hmm. and whatnot. And was that just sort of the journey you're on for five years? It was. One of the things that maybe a good point I can make is I was force fed vulnerability. Mm. I mean, I was a perfectionist and I would want you to know only certain things about me. And then I would just use denial and minimization to put the cloak of invisibility about the pain and stuff inside. But I would never let anybody get too close. So here I was owning all this stuff that I'd done. You know, my bishop, who was my counselor when I was serving this bishop, he was now my bishop in my home ward. Great guy, loved him. And I were working through this process. And, and I said, hey, if there's anybody that's battling addiction, I'm here to help. And, you know, let me know. And he calls me like two weeks later and says, hey, can you share your story on like Fifth Sunday? And I think I'd been out of rehab for like two months. And I remember just going, oh, everybody. And then a millisecond later, the Holy Ghost is like, dude, your problem was your pride. You need humility and you absolutely need to do this. So I took one breath and go, yeah. And so then I just, I told everybody, you know, my story in the ward so I could be available to, you know, help and share. But it kind of, I learned something in that process of being truthful and vulnerable you kind of control the narrative of here's who I am exactly. I don't have anything to hide. There can't be another narrative. I might have people judge me harshly, but that was on them, not on me. I'm being truthful. So I learned a great lesson about being honest and vulnerable. And then, then also how that when you are honest and vulnerable and real, it just really kills shame. Yeah. Love, light, and truth kills shame. And I was, you know, I was learning these principles slowly, but surely the Holy Ghost is teaching them to me. Yeah. And any advice you'd give to leaders like who want to create the container for individuals to share their story, like a fifth Sunday, or it might be a fireside setting or whatnot, because sometimes there's this fear of like, oh, you know, Evan hasn't been out of, out of rehab very long. Let's get a couple of years under his belt before we actually give him a microphone or whatnot. And so, right, right. right. But because the leaders wonder, I mean, what if this goes sideways? What if uh, he Mm -hmm. says something or yeah is uncomfortable. You know, there's, these are the anxieties that maybe a leader deals with, mm-hmm. but any advice you'd give to allowing other people to tell their story? Yeah. You know, there's, gosh, I have a lot to say about that. Let's actually. jump in. Okay. <laughs> there's a lot of anxiety and leadership. And I, I remember feeling it, particularly if it's something that you just feel so uncomfortable about that thing, that the arena of pornography or, and you just don't really want to have a conversation about that because it makes you feel awkward. You might want to really guard and suppress that. And really, you're fitting into the shame culture when you do that. You really are. If I were to share things with church leaders with my new eyes that I have, I would say, you know, our shame culture that we create because of our own fears really shackles healing and recovery. First, we have to acknowledge that it is. And then we have to realize wading into those things is going to be a little bit awkward, a little bit hard, a little bit fearful. But we got to do that. those things. Here's an illustration of what, what shame does. We know as church leaders that 50% of missionaries in the mission field deal with, I mean, that's the number. So it's probably just a little bit higher. They deal with a pornography problem and that's a big deal. And we as leaders have interviewed all those missionaries going out and 
we missed, we didn't catch a big chunk of them. And I think that 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 disconnect, that space is because of shame. If I were a bishop and I were interviewing you, Kurt, you're a young missionary that comes to me. And I'm really, I've been pounding obedience about, you know, not doing pornography hard. And when you come in, I explain, Kurt, this is, it's a plague in our world. It's just a really, really evil, vicious thing. It crushes and kills family. And, you know, Satan's driving this and it's such a bad, bad thing. Do you view pornography? That's a little, that's pretty heavy, right? (laughs) Now, I'm going to be a different bishop. And Kurt, I love you as a bishop. And I love you so much that I'm willing to be a little bit vulnerable with you as I communicate with you. And I say, Kurt, you know, I love you. And I want to share with you, I get what lust does. I battled it myself and it's taken its toll in my lifetime. I get it. I do. But I also know what Christ will do to help you help in that it has me in the things that I've battled in my life. And it's a challenge, but it's also a place that you can get healing from. When's the last time you viewed pornography? Hmm. Who are you going to come truth with? Yeah, yeah, one, yeah. one, there's a space of shame that I've created. And the other one, I close that gap by truthful vulnerability, light and love. Yeah. And this guy might say, yeah, Bishop, I do struggle with it. And then you could say, well, how are you doing? Would you like some help? Because I know where you can get some help. And then he may go, well, I think I got it. I think I think I can handle it on my own. You know, he's still got shame about it. And then you say, well, how long has that been going on for you? And he says, well, like four or five years. I said, how's that working for you handling it by yourself? Do you want some help? And he might start crying and say, yeah, yeah, I do want some help. And then as a bishop, you go, your arms around him, love him and say, man, I get it. I'm so sorry for your pain. But there is help and there's love and Christ can be there for you. But I would like to take you to a meeting, you and me go together, where you're going to meet other guys that are doing this battle and Christ is in this meeting. Will you come with me? And then you as a bishop, go with that guy. You take your tie off, your your suit jacket. You're going to get really with him on his level like Christ would. And then you walk with him into that meeting. Then you introduce him to these guys. And of course, Bishop... You have been to that meeting before. It's not your first time. Right. You have taken off your suit and your tie and you walked into that meeting and you were just a dude just in mm-hmm. there and you get what it is. And then you take this brother and you introduce him to other brothers and you might know people in your ward that are like, they got healing. They are, we call them old timers in our community. <laughs> they got some sobriety and you connect him with it. And he's going to find a sponsor, somebody that's going to help him that you're going to help. And you might even form an anonymity triangle with this old guy that's going to help him. That's mm-hmm. what I've done with, with our bishop. And he says, you know, would you consider sponsoring this young man that's trying to get in the mission field? And you're like, yeah. And then you have this agreement. Hey, I'm going to be your sponsor. We're going to work together. But I always am going to share with the bishop whatever we know. And you share with the bishop whatever you know. And we're going to all meet. But the bishop doesn't have time to do all the recovery stuff. He needs to have somebody that's going to be right there with him. But what a cool experience to get this guy handed off to people that are going to love and help him because it's a big deal. Yeah. So take me to that bishop's office when, with like substance abuse, especially after, I don't know what the numbers are and maybe those will surface as we go through this, this conference, but because you said like, you know, it's safe to assume 50% of the missionaries leaving on a mission probably have a struggle to some degree with mm-hmm. pornography. Mm-hmm. Should we be concerned when a member has a routine surgery or... 
I mean, do we want to pry? Obviously, there, there's HIPAA things. <laughs> they're not just right. going to. But I'm just curious, like, how can we get ahead of it so it's the. Like the, the substance abuse part. Yeah. So, so it's the bishop walking in the office rather than the DEA officer. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Which would be so nice. And and all these things, we can't ever compel anybody to get better by shaming them. It never works. You know, love is the thing, but nobody's going to want to seek recovery unless they've hit a place where, where what's considered their bottom, which means they're going to quit digging their hole. Mm -hmm. They're ready for change. But you can really just craft the conversation to, you know, very kind and loving about substance abuse. Really, you're trying to, you know, numb pain yeah. and you're using this faulty coping mechanism and you lovingly understand it. And then you reach out with love to see if they need help. And if, if you've never had that issue, you can explain that you've had issues in your life and you get it, the stuff that you can't control, you can't work with. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what it feels like to be addicted to alcohol or drugs, but I have had other things that have been really pulled on me that I struggled with in my life mm -hmm. and have worked so hard. And I know there's an answer and then put their arm around yeah. them and take them to a meeting. Yeah. Don't yeah. say, you know, I don't know what to do, but you know, I know there's this and this and, and you go walking through the door as an addict, walking through that door is so hard that first time. So if you go with your Bishop and then you get in there and you feel so much love and connection and you see these really good dudes in there that are working and you're like, oh my gosh. And as they're talking, you're going, that's how I feel. Me too. And then you'll go back. And when you go back, that connection just initiates that tactical application of the atonement, which the 12 steps is. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the core principle here is just like as leaders, if we can be catalysts of de-shaming sin and struggles and whatnot, because it is what kept you going in that addiction for three years was that, is my was shame. that shame. Absolutely. Right? That I can't. I got to do it myself. Yeah, it's so uncomfortable. I've got to figure this out, but oh, it's a really tough day. Maybe I'll just one more or I'll just order one more bottle. That's it. Right. And these are sort of the justifications you go through, but just for somebody to be an active participant in de-shaming, whatever it is, uh -huh. then hopefully they'll, they'll feel safety to begin to talk about it. Well, and to that point, you know, I've worked with different church leaders and there's an illustration in, in my stake. There's a bishop that is an addict in recovery and he's very open about that's what he is. Mm -hmm. And remember going to a fifth Sunday presentation with him. Well, I, I've seen him at our meetings. He's a great guy. He comes to our recovery meetings. Hmm. Not all, he can't all the time, but he'll, he'll show up occasionally. And he admits to his past, what he's done. And we're in this fifth Sunday presentation with the ward. And there's some other addicts recovery there. And, and two that particularly presented and shared their stories. And it was kind of, they're going around the circle and he was next in line, sitting right by him. And then he goes, hi, my name's John and I'm an addict in recovery. That's how he introduced himself to his ward. And then he just bore testimony of Christ and how he's healed and, and the atonement and then invited people to come in if they got issues to him and his office is flooded. Yeah. And then I know others that it's like such an awkward conversation. They don't ever want to go there and they don't ever want to present that they've ever had a problem because they just do things perfectly and they never get those conversations. Another illustration. As a father growing up, perfectionist guy, I think that the way to preach and teach my kids is show them this perfect example of how you roll. Preach obedience really, really hard. Not really talk much about the fact that you could sin or that I have sinned and that there's a Christ and an atonement. And so I kind of rolled that way. And then what happened is my kids are like, I can't talk to him. He'll never, never understand. I just put shame on him. 
now in recovery, I realize, man, if I am real, vulnerable, honest, and I teach my kids that, man, you crash and burn sometimes in life, which they will. Mm-hmm. And I show them that Christ can save you. He can redeem you. What's a better lesson? Now there's a conversation that can happen. Yeah. Now I'm teaching about redemption in Christ rather than go, no, I don't, you know, I don't understand. Matter of fact, I can't tolerate that problem. And if you do have a problem, shame, shame, shame. Mm-hmm. And I've done that. I've done that with my kids maybe not so much verbally, but by my actions and just the aura of, you know, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't, I don't ever do anything wrong. Yeah. 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 But, but that's the same thing with the Bishop. What message are we going to send? Yeah. The shame message or the redemption message. I know that Boyd K. Packer talked to the MTC, beautiful lecture. I heard this from Jared Halverson, whom I love. Mm-hmm. And he said in preaching, he said, in today's world that we live in, we cannot teach obedience more than redemption, healing, we have to teach that more because as we preach obedience so hard on people that like we're going to scare them into compliance, then we might have some compliance out of fear, but we want obedience out of love, right? And then we're creating such a shame culture that people will not even approach us to get the redemption. That's that disconnect of the numbers, which we got to bridge that, I think, in the church by just being a little more filled with light, love, and truth, which yeah. means vulnerability, honesty, our own. Nobody's come down on earth that's done it perfectly. So yeah. why pretend, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, going back to this as far as like sharing story, like one advice I always give to leaders is like, you know, you, they may hear all that you say and think, oh man, I'm still not sure how to go about it. I feel uncomfortable. I don't know how to talk about it. The easiest thing to stimulate this is invite someone like Evan to come to, the, you know, the fifth Sunday or and model to the group, the elders quorum to the ward or whatever, this is what it looks like for someone to share their story of redemption. And then that automatically creates safety that the bishop didn't have to get up and like stammer through his own story or weaknesses or whatever, but it's going to get them into the bishop's office knowing that, okay, this is a safe place. The bishop has shown me mm-hmm. he's willing to hear Evan's story. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, maybe he's willing to hear my story mm-hmm. right? and away we go. Well, in, in, in that place, if a Bishop or stake president feels awkward about those kind of conversations on the fifth Sunday, you know, lean into it and then have somebody be real truthful. And of course, like here, here's a, for example, I remember sharing my, my story once and I had this guy that was an ex bishop. He didn't tell me, but he told one of my dear friends said, you know what? He's glorifying sin. Hmm. And, and it's like, I'm glorifying the atonement, the doctrine of Christ. And we know in doctrine covenants that says, preach no more nor no less than the doctrine of Christ, Mm -hmm. which is repent and come unto me. There's an inference in that phrase, repent and come unto me. The inference is you've sinned. Right. We all have. We all have. We all have. And then if I'm making it more complicated, I'm preaching more than, I'm a Pharisee and I've got all these check boxes that I've made on the path. My covenant path is boom, 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 boom. We'll be just like the Pharisees and we will actually be rocking that path, checking the boxes and Christ is standing right in front of us. And we crucify him because we don't even know who he is. Yeah. Versus the, you know, the different way of, you know, living the law of love, you know, obeying out of love, you know, get de-shaming it, take yeah. the check boxes away. Yeah. That's really helpful. And just how we talk about sin is I think something to really sit with and ponder over. Even this one thing I'm trying to work out of my vocabulary is identifying sin as serious sin. And then there's just sin as a general, you know, topic or concept where even though I don't have this remarkable story of recovery and addiction and whatever, my sin will still keep me as far away from God as Evan's sin. 
And so let's not talk about, let's not categorize sin of what it is. It's just all mm-hmm. sin keeps us from God. Mm-hmm. We never glorify it, but of course we need to identify it that this is, we need Christ to help us go through that sin to mm-hmm. reach God. And without mm-hmm. that sin component, we then it comes across like, oh, I've figured it out. I've done all the good things that the, the temple recommend holding sins that I mm-hmm. talk about that they're not that bad. And I can still reach God because I haven't, yeah, I know I'm imperfect, but I haven't done a serious sin. It's like, no, all sin is serious because it takes us from the presence of God. Right. Yeah. And we know that we were sent to earth, this learning lab called life with the customized curriculum that the plan was you're going to fall in a pit. Yeah. You're going to fall in a pit. Think of a deep well, and you're going to try to get out of that pit, whatever it is, however deep it is, but you're going to bloody yourself trying to climb and claw up those walls yourself. You're going to have scrapes, bruises. You climb part way up, you fall back down, particularly if it's a serious sin or an addiction. And you're going to just be a mess at a point. And at some point when you exhaust your own ability, you're going to look up at the top and you're going to see the Savior. And he's going to look down with such loving eyes, smiling at you, and he's going to take a rope. And this is a Jared Halverson analogy, which I give him credit for. And he's going to toss this beautiful rope down. And he's going to say, you don't have to do anything but tie this rope, bowling around yourself and hang on. And then you see him pulling you up with the strength of his hands, the ropes of the Redeemer, the atonement. And you see the love in his eyes and his heart. And in this place of tremendous fear, you come out of this pit and you develop a relationship in this process. You get out of the pit. You're so excited. He dusts you off and you're like, ah, I'm where I wanted. I wanted to get rid of this thing so I could live my life the way that I wanted to live like normally, right? My wife's been waiting for me. And he smiles at you and he says, that's not the plan. He says, you were in this pit for a reason. And I tossed these ropes. You were in so that you could understand these ropes, the strength of my hands, my love for you, form a relationship. And now you know that, that you're here. Now we're going to go mountain climbing Hmm. and we're going to see beautiful vistas. That's what my ropes are for. That's what I'm for. But no longer is it fear driven. That's justification. Now sanctification is love driven. It's an invitation. Yeah. Do you want to come? Yeah. And then you go, dude, I have changed my heart. I know you now because of my pit. And so, yeah, let's go. And he's like, we're going to help some guys along the way. And are you in? And you're like, my motivation no longer is fear. My motivation is love. You know, that change of heart in that process of being in that pit is so powerful So all of us will have pits, you know, whatever depth that it is, you can't get out without him and you got to get to know him. Yeah. That's powerful. Love it. Anything else around the concept of sharing story and and inviting others to share a story and whatnot, anything we we haven't touched on? I think that sharing stories is a way that, I mean, Christ talked in parables. When people, you, you are a talk or a conference talk or anything, and there's a story and, you know, it could be a really personal story. I think when truth is spoken, the Holy Ghost comes. And sometimes that truth is somebody's sharing the truth of their story and their divinity. When you're in a recovery meeting, if you've never been in a recovery meeting and you hear these guys that are all very humble, they've come through that door hungry for help. Their humility's there. And if they speak truth about their story, oh my gosh, the spirit comes so strong. It's just a beautiful thing, tears and eyes. And and so stories that are truthful and authentic are really real. One of the things that I would say that I've learned in this process, being a perfectionist, I thought that if people would love me, if they knew how good I was and how 
well I did things and I had, you know, trophies on the wall or, you know, my merit badges on my banalo that they go, oh, that guy's really good and cool. And I've learned that that's not true. That's actually kind of almost a disconnecting thing. Mm -hmm. But when they know, you know, the real you, the wounds, the stuff that you've been through, you know, the hard things, vulnerability and honesty of real self, that creates connection. God loves us and he sees deeply into us. Steve Young calls it through the transfigured eyes. Mm. Terry Warner calls it seeing people truly, but he looks deeply into and sees the wounds and he loves. So I have found out for me that the wounded real me, it's the opposite of the perfectionist thought, is loved more than the veneered looks good, everything's right guy. Yeah. Talk to us about the the dynamic of you being a, you know, a, a, a dentist and having uh-huh. access in that professional, uh-huh. because you said you met with other, in groups of other professionals or right. medical professionals that maybe that was part of their, their mm-hmm. addiction. Mm-hmm. Anything that leaders should be aware of, of that dynamic, or is it more prominent or should we touch in a little more often with the, the chiropractor or whatever? <laughs> well, you know, it's a legitimate thing. In my opinion, there's way more problems out there that people are dealing with than they'll ever share with anybody or their bishop. So I think that if we just create a place and a space where it's okay to admit to that, which comes from more people acknowledging the Mm -hmm. fact that they're dealing with stuff and we're all, you know, beautiful, wonderful children of God that are divine and ideal, but we're in mortality with a fallen body and a fallen state. And we're dealing with all those things. So we have stuff. If we could just be more acknowledging that. I think we've just created a place where nobody could admit to any fault or flaw. They mm-hmm. just can't. Yeah. You know, we show up in church in our in our uniform and, you know, you got to play the part, be the role, or you feel such shame about any little thing that you do. So, yeah, I think doing that will kind of broach it for no matter where you are in life. Yeah. But yeah. no, I think there's a lot of people that are just struggling, dealing with stuff. Yeah. And can I talk for a second? There's addictions, Addicts and recover, there's bad habits. And yeah. Sometimes the terminology is a little bit of an issue that people will struggle with, depending upon their view of it. If you're an addict in recovery and you got long-term recovery, you have no problem with that word. There's no shame around it. There might be shame from somebody else saying that word. And somebody might not be a full-blown addict. They're just someone that has a really bad habit. They're trying to curb this habit. The semantics, we kind of, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't be so worried about it because yeah. you know what? The solution for both of those is the same. Yeah. Same solution. <laughs> Don't get hung up on semantics. You know, if somebody has a really bad habit they're struggling with, well, I can help you. I'll teach you some stuff that will connect you and get you right. right. And it's still the atonement, the tactical application of the atonement. Yeah, that's powerful. So what does a recovery look like for you today? How many years sober are you? Well, I would tell you I'm over 20 years sober with the porn addiction, but I would tell you like about 10 years of that's what we call um, abstinence. There's a difference between abstinence and deliverance, like true God-given uh-huh. recovery with a deep change is different. So the white knuckling abstinence, 10 years of that. And then after I had the explosion and then the deep dive, you know, the humility that created my connection, getting real. And then God has just blessed my life. And I've got a, just a tremendous spouse, which, you know, has walked with me through this. And she has done her deep dive in her own stuff. And I've done my deep dive in my stuff and we've both found Christ and grown together. She went to a lot of Al-Anon meetings. She's gone to a lot of recovery meetings. And what does that stand for? Just some people aren't familiar. Um, Al-Anon is a place where if you are related to or connected to an addict, it helps you to deal with the concept of, you don't have control over the addict. 
you can't be freaking out about what you can or can't do regarding their disease. Mm -hmm. You have to work on self, get right yourself and connect to God personally. That's the best thing that you could do in your recovery. And that's the same message really for an addict is you really can't really be worrying about what other people are thinking and doing. You have to focus on your recovery. The big book talks about don't try and clean up other people's side of the street. Don't look at their potholes and go, oh, that's really bad. Your pothole on your side. You can only clean up your side of the street. It's the only thing you have control over. So I, and I'm kind of taking a little different track yeah, on your question, but just a, a tremendous wife and, and in recovery, we've learned about, you know, sacred daily rituals of our connection, our study, our thought. And, um, and just, I don't know, it I feel like we got the rope and we're like, let's go mountain climbing. Mm -hmm. I'm ready for sanctification. So he's just teaching us a lot and we don't do it perfectly. Yeah. And like, we get that when we get yeah. that, we feel that disconnection because we're getting busy or distracted or obsessed about something that we're working on and we don't do those dailies right. We just have to forgive ourselves and realize, you know what? I feel that, that connection it's waning. I got to get back there. Yeah. And so obviously you go to a weekly 12 step meeting mm -hmm. just because you're in charge of it, right? Mm -hmm. Is that something that even regardless of that calling that you would continue to do or do others do it? Or they step away for a while or like, what is great question? Yeah, what does that look like? So I'm going to go the rest of my life. I'm living in step 12. This is my calling. Kurt, my, sorry, man. One of the greatest blessings in my recovery, the most divinity, the most times that God speaks to me through the spirit has been me with my sponsee in my den in this sacred of places for me. It's been in meetings. You'd think it's for them. I'm so well paid by just the spirit and the blessings of that thing. I cannot not do that. It has to be a part of my life. So I'm going to go to these meetings the rest of my life. And that brings up a point. I'm not that I'm got it all figured out, but in the church's addiction recovery program, and I think it's part of our shame culture, we want people to get some sobriety that they're having this really bad problem. Just get a little bit of sobriety and graduate, do your 12 steps, you know, maybe not with the sponsor, but just, you know, lock yourself in your room and alone, you know, go through your 12 steps, you graduated and you've got some sobriety and then you, you don't have to come anymore because you're fixed, right? Because there's such shame about this thing. And then, then you don't have to go to these meetings. So the issue is people will go out and they'll relapse because they don't have that deep, good recovery. And they're also disengaged. I don't want to go to those meetings anymore. I'm, 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 I'm graduated, you know, I passed. And so in ARP, there's not very many, what we call old timers in there. And that's a AA term because I've got five years of AA recovery. So I got a lot of my terminology and my stuff that I learned, which is really spiritual, really deep that I use in the church setting. So we're missing in our ARP meetings, people that are old timers, they have long-term really good sobriety and they keep showing up to the meetings to share the message of experience, strength, and hope and connection and love and God and long-term sobriety. The, the people that are in the meeting there that are sharing these things are so valuable to the addicts that are in early recovery. There's a lot of people that are just struggling, they're battling and they're fighting and they're relapsing and their stuff. They need to see people that are healing. And then those guys need to be sponsors for the young guys. So I think part of our shame culture has created a situation where you don't see that very often because it's like, there's such shame of, of being an addict or being in that meeting as an old timer. It's like, I don't ever show back up. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, we have an issue and it's shame driven. Yeah. And from the leadership perspective, I, you know, I often wor would worry about some individuals who did the 12 steps things for a while, but now they feel like, 
oh, life's pretty good. I think I got to figure it out. And they go, don't go back. And I often wonder, man, I mean, should I encourage them to go back? Should I be worried that they're, that it was sort of a short lived thing or maybe it just worked and yeah, maybe they can move on with the rest of their life. And I'm sure there are recovering addicts who are, you know, they don't need the weekly thing. They, they still find stability, but mm-hmm. I mean, should we encourage? And I think so. Really, we want to have our hearts changed. We want to be a new creature in Christ. And if your heart is really changed, step 12 says, share this beautiful message with other people. And really your ongoing long-term sobriety is so dependent upon that thing. Early sobriety is so controlled by fear. It's fear-driven. If I, do, if I don't do this, I'm going to die or I'm going to whatever. Or I'm going to blah, blah, blah. I can't go on my mission or whatever. And it's very fear-driven. It's not going to exist long-term in fear. Fear is a really good short-term motivator. Long-term, it has to be changed and evolved into a love-driven. I love the way I live. I love the gifts that come in this place where I'm connected with him. And whatever it takes, I'm going to just keep doing that. And if you're in that place, you got your long-term sobriety. Yeah. So what does sobriety today look like for your recovery look like? As a dentist, I mean, because you are still practicing and you mm-hmm. go to the office and you do mm-hmm. the things. And mm-hmm. is there anything you are required to do or that you do do to make sure you stay safe? No, there's nothing that I really have to do now because of that five-year thing was over about, you know, five, six years ago. So yeah. I've been uh, uh, kind of on my own. But it's like now there doesn't have to be a whip, a stick. Um, there's no prod or no, yeah. in, there's no fear in my recovery now. I choose to do certain things because I love what it does for me. And my wife is, we're on the same track. Mm-hmm. We love, you know, the feeling, the connection. We love, like I wear a missionary tag that says Evan, Elder Evan Hathaway, you know. Like when you go to the, the meetings or? When I go to the meetings, yeah. that's, that's, and I wear it in church. That missionary tag, when I got called to that, I told my stake president, I said, thank you for this calling because I've been called by God in this thing. I'm just kind of cool that my priesthood leaders are validating that, but I will continue to be in this calling the rest of my life. Mm. I mean, I have seen and experienced and watched and be a part of a sponsee that's going through this process that is so divine. And, you know, I don't know, I, I probably will never serve in a church leadership position where it's you're up in front of people's eyes because it's probably wouldn't be good for me because the monster pride would take over. Mm. But I just assume be a Navy SEAL that's like swim under the water. So I'm, hidden, pop up, help solve this thing, and then come back out and then don't tell anybody. Yeah. Because for me, if I do things that my pride, you know, takes over of, oh, wow, you know, then I'm in trouble because the pride was the monster that killed me the first time. So I'm constantly battling that demon. Don't go there do that. So here talking to you, don't be prideful. This is God's (laughs) work, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about just the impact this maybe had on your, your marriage, your family early on. I mean, cause you were taking that, that stroll that early morning thinking you may lose everything, including Absolutely. your family. And so Absolutely. obviously there's things we've talked about in other episodes, like betrayal trauma and just the, the stress it has on people. So or on families. So what was that experience like? That's for you? a great question. And it's actually something I'd, l- I'd love to talk about. In addiction, there's this really interesting concept that happens. It's called the cloak of invisibility, denial, minimization, rationalizing that you do towards your addiction. You'll pull this screen up is because you can't, it's so painful for you to be doing what you're doing and you got to make it right. It's against your, your soul. And so you pull this screen up by doing these mental gyrations to make it okay that you're doing this thing. And it's really damning. 
Mm-hmm. When you get in recovery, you start to strip this thing down and go, oh, that was the real me. This is what it was going on and doing. And a really big part of recovery is doing that thing. Well, interestingly, that's not the only cloak of invisibility that you pull up. Over here, you have wife, family, kids, people that you love, and you've pulled up the same cloak of invisibility regarding the pain and hurt and damage and suffering that you've caused those folks. It hurts really bad when you go into that and you go into really tremendous shame. For me, in recovery, I had spent you know 10 years of my white knuckling, my abstinence with the porn thing. And if my wife ever brought that up, that we want to talk about that, I would feel such shame about that. I had the cloak of invisibility going really good there. I, I was handling my addiction, but I'd say, you know, I repented of that a long time ago. And when, you know, Christ says he will, you know, see those sins no more, you know, I really don't want to talk about that. I haven't done it for 10 years, honey. You know, we don't need to talk about that. So what I did is I completely just shut her down, mm. her healing, and, and I didn't validate anything. So we realized that there was work yet to be done in recovery that I'd caused this tremendous amount of pain that I haven't even, I, I maybe said, I'm sorry quickly. And I'm, you know, I just hate that I did that. And then I'd be in such shame. I really didn't want to go there. So when, when I was able to heal enough that I didn't have that shame, then I could pull that cloak of invisibility down and reach out and grab her hand and own what I'd done and acknowledge it and then be able to walk with her into that pain. And we did a lot of counseling and therapy and retreats in that principle to help her heal. But I had to be able to walk with her into that pain that I caused, Mm. own it, and then, you know, really acknowledge and realize and and see her as the hero in my life that she's been in all this process. You know, what a, just a tremendous giant, you know, she's been in this process. So there's this betrayal trauma that it took me a level of healing to be able to go, okay, let's walk into that. And interestingly, because as an addict, and I hope I'm not talking too long, no, you're good. as an addict, there's a l- really interesting side effect. So you have all these things bubbling up in your life that are pains, ill-feeling. We call it a dis-ease, at ease, uncomfortable, ill at ease, dis-ease. The stuff that comes up that's uncomfortable, that's painful. When you live an addict lifestyle, and many of us not even as addicts, you run and hide from those things. You really don't use your proper coping mechanisms, which is let's talk about this. Let's be really real and vulnerable. You know, as a friend, a wife, a bishop, the Lord, let's talk about these. That's the healthy coping mechanism. We don't do that. What we do typically is that thing bubbles up that's uncomfortable. We're like, okay, how do I deal with that? Well, let me run and hide. I've got A, B, C, and D. I've got these multiple things that I can do to numb from it. So then I don't have to deal with that feeling that comes up that's, that's uncomfortable. So what happens is, we really lose the ability to feel things that are happening in our life. Our self-awareness is garbage. You know, the acuity for those things coming up, we just don't notice. And so what happens is our emotional intimacy, really good word, stinks. Mm. It's horrible. So wives would love to have emotional intimacy, but you've got to be able to feel feelings acknowledged and talk about. So an addict, side effect of an addict, the way that they've dealt with this stuff they don't have any emotional intimacy. It just stinks. They know anger, fear, pain. You know, they just know these few things. And, and if something's uncomfortable, they use their addict, addiction. Well, when that addiction's gone, we have to relearn how to feel feelings, to recognize them, to do- dive into them, to pull them out. I remember therapists, like we're working on this. It's like, he's pulling these strands out. Does it kind of look like, and feel like this? I'm like going, yeah, I don't have the words, but you're saying it really good and blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> in recovery, you develop 
and relearn this emotional intimacy that your mm. wife has been craving. I mean, she goes talks to her girlfriends about things all the time, but you know, I wasn't really available to be at that level. I thought I was, but I really wasn't. Yeah. So in recovery, we've been able to reconnect on this really heart level about stuff. There was a place I just never really was willing to or could go because yeah. I was immature in that way. So that's been a really cool blessing in our life is to kind of realize, oh my gosh, that's that's one of the things. And we had to we had to heal that betrayal trauma and then start to work on these things to the point where she's connecting with God. I'm connecting with God. We're healing all these wounds that are blocking us. And then it's just like, oh my gosh, we're in a really good place. Yeah. And it's like we don't do it perfectly, but it's it's like I want to keep going on this. This yeah. is really awesome. And that's part of the the mountain climb you're referencing, right? Absolutely. Because and I think this may be a dynamic church leaders might may run into is that the individual like gets their addiction handled and maybe in a very healthy way. It's like, you know, I don't put that screen up anymore. You know, I'm, I, I've, I've dealt with that pain and whatever I'm good now, but my wife just keeps bringing it up again. Right. And obviously there's some pain there. And so you may see this thing like, well, she just keeps wanting me to talk about it. I've repented. I'm good. Right. And so that's maybe a red flag of being, oh, there's maybe a misconnection of emotional intimacy that the healing has been, he hasn't shown that he's willing to walk out into that pain, that field of pain with her and really start talking and addressing mm-hmm. the the betrayal that happened there, the mm-hmm. pain, right? It wasn't just about getting rid of the sin. It's about offering healing after the fact. You know, there's this really interesting dynamic. You'd shut me off if you ever, at any point in time. I love it. You can edit this out. <laughs> but there's this really interesting dynamic that I've watched me go through and other people that are in early recovery with a spouse. And that is, you know, here we are rolling on life and my wife's wondering, gosh, there's something weird about him. You know, what's going on? And she's at this level. And then I hit my bottom, bam. And then disclosure happens to my wife. I'm way down here and just crushed. And But I start to, in that place of humility, start to climb up. My wife is just starting to comprehend. She goes numb. She's like, what? And initially she might be going, oh, I forgive you. It's all good. And then at some point, she starts to sink in from the pain that I initiated in her life. And she starts to go down and I start to be, get this healing, wonderful, it's awesome. And then my, I'm trying to tell my wife, well, gosh, this 12-step healing recovery is so awesome. I still have a cloak of invisibility about the pain about that's caused her. And she's like, oh yeah, 12 steps, you, yeah, it's still all about you. Oh, and she's dying inside mm-hmm. for connection. Well, what happens is at this point where she's hitting this place, she feels a lot of pain, which I initiated. And then she starts to dig deeply in her own life, not regarding the addiction, her own life, her own trauma, her own wounds, her own imprints and agreements. And she starts to do her own work on her side of the street. And she goes down about these wounds. And then she starts to seek this divinity herself. And then she starts healing and then at a point, I'm humble enough and acknowledged enough without my cloak of invisibility about the stuff that's between us. And then I start to heal as well. And then we both start to go like this and get closer and closer as we're approaching God. Yeah. But this little boom, boom. And then I, as an addict, have to be comfortable with the fact that I brought the pain. It initiated my healing. It was my stuff. But I also brought the pain to her. I have to be okay with that that has initiated her pain and then her digging deep and finding more pain in her life and then her own personal healing. And when you get good recovery, you look back at that and she's like, if you ask my wife, 
you know, are you glad that you went through this? I mean, I am glad this is exactly what I needed that pain to get where I am now. I'm so grateful that God has a plan with my customized curriculum. And then he gave me the corrective action that I needed because I was tracking the bad way. There's a crack in my foundation, bad. And if you ask my wife, what about, you know, this pain, your husband's addiction, she would tell you, oh yeah, I'm so glad. She's grateful because it's been a place where both of us have had, you know, change and healing. Yeah. That's really helpful. Really helpful. Well, if people, uh, I mean, want, especially those in the Boise area, the Treasure Valley, as they call it, uh, mm-hmm. if, if they want to reach out to you and have you come tell your story or whatnot, is that something you're open to? Or Absolutely. I'm really stinking. I don't have any social media. <laughs> My life, which is bad. I'm, I'm an old guy. Um, I'm <laughs> well, not really good with technology. I don't know if it's all bad, but yeah. 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 But but yeah, reach out to me. Absolutely. Okay. I'd love to hear from you. Some contact information. And yeah. I'll put some, con- or, okay. or, or if there's a, you know, a church leader that wants to talk more about this, I'd be, I'd be happy to um, share anything. I, you know, humble, I'm yeah. limited absolutely in my church leadership, but just my perspective of seeing it from different angles is, yeah. I think good, but yeah, I, I'll put some, I'll put some contact information. Great. I have to connections, the cure. That's right. Let's keep it going. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Last question I have for you or I guess more of an invitation. And and I want you to speak directly to a room full of church leaders and you can just look right into the camera, you look at me, whatever you're comfortable with. And just what final encouragement would you have leaders who are striving so much to be helpful to uh, people in addiction? What final encouragement would you give for them? I'd say all of you guys are great guys, wonderful hearts, serving the Lord, great testimonies, beautiful people, but we're all still wounded. And I would say, you know, be real, be vulnerable, acknowledge your own woundedness because it testifies Christ. If you have some scars that are healed, they're not anything to be ashamed of. They're things of beauty because that wounded scar speaks to the divinity of Christ. If it's not healed, it's kind of painful to talk about, to touch. But if it's healed and you know of the healer that healed that, don't be ashamed. Don't hide it. I would say that if you act and and lead and love in that way. If you love enough to be just a little bit vulnerable, there's going to be tremendous connection. And in that connection, love and healing, I think that you're going to be a more effective church leader. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, visit leadingsaints.org recovering or click the link in the show notes to attend this virtual conference for free. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, 
we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.